Welcome. All right, so Timothy and Titus. Why would we pair these two together? Why do a class on Timothy and Titus as one class? They're both disciples. Okay. What did you say, Eric? They're both pastors. Yeah. So we have Timothy, who's a young pastor, and Titus, who's a young pastor. And both of them are companions of Paul that Paul writes letters to. Uh, Today, we're going to not really focus a whole lot on the letters written to them, but more so just broadly on their life. Um, So with that in mind, so we know that they're both pastors. What else do we know about them? Before we actually look at their lives, what is kind of the knowledge in the room? Who is Timothy? What do we know about Timothy? So his background religiously is a mixed background. There's Jewish background and there's Gentile background. Okay. What about Titus? What do we know about Titus? So Timothy shows up all over the New Testament, like all over the New Testament. Titus, not as much, but what do we know about him other than than the fact that he's a pastor? It's a good thing we're doing the class. All right, so we'll we'll start here with Timothy. Uh, The first thing we're going to see about his background, Jimmy just said, but he comes from a religiously mixed background. Somebody want to turn to Acts chapter 16? Tim, you want to take Acts 16, verses 1 through 3? And then, Mark, do you mind taking uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5? Sure. Tim, you got it? Great. Okay, so just to recap that, what, what are the two things we heard there about his religious background? His mom is what? Jewish. His dad is what? Greek. Okay. Mark, you want to take Second Timothy? When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Okay. Who's absent? When he talks about kind of the spiritual influence in Timothy's life, who does he not mention? His father. father. So what can we kind of conclude from this? He's not only a Greek, but he's not what? He's probably not a Christian. So Timothy's background is mom and grandmother are Christians. They teach him the scripture. Dad's never called a Christian, never, never mentioned as someone who teaches him the scriptures. One other place, it kind of reinforces this, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Let's see. Jimmy, you want to take that one? But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood 
you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, who's the one who taught him the scriptures? Who? We saw your mom and grandmother. Again, no mention of who? No mention of dad. So, I think what we can mine out of this is Timothy's coming from a background where he's getting the scriptures, but he's in a home where not everyone's a Christian. There's no spiritual leadership from dad. Right? I know we're going to get to application stuff in a moment, but what can we apply from that? What about people who are in a home where there is no spiritual leadership from dad? Are they hopeless? Are, are the children just like hopeless that God can't save them and God can't use them, God can't teach them? Because the standard model is mom and dad are Christians and both teaching the scriptures. Timothy doesn't have that, and yet what happens with Timothy? He's what? He's converted, and what? The Lord uses him, raises him up to be a pastor. So I think this is hopeful, even in homes where dad may not be a Christian or dad may not be diligent to teach the scriptures. God can use a non-normative home to raise up Christians. God can use faithful moms and grandmothers who will teach the scriptures even when dad doesn't and use that mightily. So that's his background. He's coming from a background where, where dad is a Gentile, not a Christian, not teaching the scriptures, and mom and grandmother are both converted out of Judaism and teaching him the scriptures from a young age. The next thing we read it in Acts chapter 16, Timothy's circumcised. And anyone remember why he's circumcised? Acts 16 why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? Because, well, he's... His family, he came from a family where his father was a Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he also has Jewish background as well. So, verse 3 in, in Acts 16, he says this. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So, he wants him to do what? He says, accompany him where? On what? His missionary journeys, right? So... This guy is somebody I want to take with me. He's not circumcised yet. So Paul has him circumcised because of the, the Jews. We'll talk about that in a moment. So it's a major life event for Timothy. An adult man who Paul wants to bring with him and he has him circumcised. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the theological section. So he's a man who's coming from a religiously mixed background. Dad's not a Christian. Mom and grandmother are. He's circumcised. Third thing we kind of just want to think about in the life of Timothy is his character. Timothy in Acts 16 verse 2, when Paul is coming into Derbe and Lystra, Timothy is someone, verse 2 tells us, is well spoken of by the church. The church is like, Timothy is a man of character. He's a man of integrity. He's upright. Mark, do you want to take Philippians 2, verse 19 through 22? And this is another place where we just see Timothy's character displayed. Paul's going to talk about what kind of a man Timothy is. will be genuine 
genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. What do we see about Timothy? What does Paul say? There's what? There's nobody like him. So this is, if I were to think of like who I'd want to send to you, there's nobody that comes to mind that parallels Timothy is what Paul says. He's a man of like unrivaled character and usefulness in the gospel. So Timothy is a man from a religiously split background. He's circumcised. He's a man of upright character. There's a ton of verses. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm just going to list off some of the things that Paul says about him as a partner. So next thing we're just going to see that Timothy is a close partner in the gospel with Paul. In two places in Scripture, he's called a fellow worker. Three places Paul calls him a brother in the faith. He's called a fellow bondservant, a beloved and faithful child in the Lord, a son to Paul, and a co-equal in the Lord's work. So this is a man that is with Paul all over the place. That Paul's regularly like, I'm sending him out to this church. Things are a mess in Corinth, so I'm going to send Timothy because he can take care of it. Things are a mess in Ephesus. I'm going to send Timothy. He can take care of it. He's this man who's followed Paul along from a young age, who's learned from Paul, been discipled by Paul. And now Paul's just like sending him out because he's this trusted companion. Paul co-authors letters. You realize that when or, uh, Timothy co-authors letters. Anyone know any of the letters that Timothy co-authors? So when Paul starts out a letter, he'll say, Paul to the church. There's a number of letters that aren't just Paul writing. Anyone know any of them off the top of your head? Philemon. Philemon. Yep, we saw that last week. Jimmy, I'm glad you remember that. Colossians. Colossians, there's six of them. Philemon, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, Philippians, and 2 Corinthians. So this is a guy who's coming from a background where dad's not a, a Christian teaching the scriptures in the home, and he co-authors six New Testament letters with Paul. I find that quite encouraging. We've already said this, but he's a young pastor. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Paul, writing to him, says, Let no one despise you for your what? For your youth. And this is later in Paul's life. So who knows how old Timothy is when Paul takes him in Acts 16. Paul's taking this young man with him. He's following him around through all of these missionary journeys, watching Paul's life, hearing him preach the gospel. And now he's a pastor. And Paul says, don't let anyone in the church despise you just because you're young. You're still useful. You're still, just be faithful. All right. Now Titus. We're going to kind of move quickly through these bio, biographical sections. Titus. This was the one when I said, what do you know about Titus? We are all quiet. So we know that Paul wrote a letter to him. But as far as where he shows up in the New Testament, he's not one of the main characters. He's not one of the main figures. But he does show up quite a bit, relatively speaking. First thing we see is his background. Uh, we'll look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Galatians 2, 1 through 3. Kevin, you want to read that? Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up 
up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seem influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. All right, so what do we find out about his ethnic background? He's a what? Which means he's not a what? So we have a man, unlike Timothy, he's not from a mixed background. He doesn't have any Jewish blood, any Jewish heritage, any Jewish influence. He's a Gentile. The second thing we see about him, what's different between what we said about Timothy? Timothy was what? Circumcised. And now Paul is what? Taking Titus with him to Jerusalem and he refuses to have him circumcised. We'll talk about that in a moment. Quite a significant event for the history of the church. So Titus is a Gentile. He would be someone who grew up in a pagan home. Someone who didn't have the scriptures taught to him at an early age, like like Timothy. But just like Timothy, he's a close companion of Paul. Titus chapter 1, verse 4, I'll read that. Listen Listen to how Paul talks about Titus. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Why do you think he calls him a child, a true child? So what might that imply? Maybe. He may be someone that Paul led to faith, that, that Paul was an instrument of his conversion. So he might be looking at him as, here's a son in the faith. I think that's a huge part of it. What else might be a part of that? He, he leads him to the Lord, and now what? He disciples him. He's, he's a spiritual father to him. He's, he's an instrument the Lord uses to nurture and grow this man's faith. And now this man's a young pastor. We also find in 2 Corinthians 2.13, I'll read that as well, that he's a companion. Just Again, the way Paul talks about these men, it's not just like, hey, here's some dude that is going to come to you. Like, Paul loves these people. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. <clears throat> my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. What, is, what do we see here? He comes into the town and he's hoping to find Titus. And what happens? He's not there. And what does Paul say? He doesn't take rest. What, what, what's happening here? He's someone that Paul what? Genuinely loves. Someone Paul has great concern for. And he's like, where's Titus? This is my companion in the faith. This is one, a brother in the faith. This is someone I love, and I don't know where he is, so I'm kind of concerned. We also see, lastly, about his kind of bi- biography is that he's a willing servant. There's a lot of places this happens. We'll look at two of them. But just like Timothy, we just find Paul kind of taking Titus and saying, go here, go there, go here, go there. In one of the places, in 2 Corinthians 8, we find that Titus is, a, is someone who goes not under compulsion, but desires to go, to be sent. So, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 16. Anyone know what's happening in this section of 2 Corinthians? There's a, yeah, so there's poor saints where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And 
Titus shows up all over chapter 8, like multiple times. He's kind of the main guy who's bringing the collection and taking the collection. He's going all over the place. And look at what verse 13 says. It says this. Is it verse 13? I may have the wrong verse. Sorry, verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for you, or as for our brothers, they are messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. So he's a partner, he's a fellow worker. We find, you'll find elsewhere, starting in verse 16, going through verse 24, that, that Titus is one who will go of his own accord, who's not, he's not under compulsion, he's volunteering to do this stuff. So Titus is a brother in the Lord who's been saved under Paul's ministry from a Gentile background who, who is eager to serve the church. And this is where we'll slow down a little bit. So let's look at some theological truths. The first thing I think we can mine out of both of these brothers' lives when we combine looking at both of them is the, the role and the use of the law. So we're coming from, okay, Acts is happening, the gospel is spreading, there's Jews who are dispersed all over the place, and what's central to Jewish life? The law, the Torah, right? We keep the law. We're law keepers. And then comes this strange new teaching to their ears that says the law is what? Useless. You don't even need to read it anymore, right? No, that's not what they're saying. What, it, what is being preached by Paul and Peter? That the law what? It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. Jesus has come. The, the fulfillment of the law has come. One who's kept all of it has come. It's fulfilled. Everything it points to and everything it anticipates and is moving to is found in Jesus. Does that mean we don't need the law? Does that mean the law is useless? No. So now what do we do with the law? What is the law useful for? There's a lot of things. What, what, what are some things the law is useful for? Eric? It reveals sin. Yeah. Yeah. So we read the law and we find, here's the standard. I fall short. I need help because I don't do all these things. In the, the law tells me I have to do all these things if I'm supposed to have life. I don't do them, so I need Jesus. I need to look outside of myself. And I think that's one of the things that we're going to see here is how do we use the law? And that's where I want to come back to the circumcision thing. Does the law command men who are from eight days old or converts to Judaism to be circumcised? Yes. Yes. We have two men, Timothy and Titus. Neither one of them are circumcised. So the question becomes, why does Paul have one circumcised and does he have the other one not circumcised? Why? Why do you think, Zach? Mm-hmm. And so we no longer have to do physical circumcision because the new reality is here. Yeah. And that's when God saves people and regenerates them to know him. Yeah. 
And so that's why they don't have to be, but he has Timothy circumcised so that they can have conversations about the gospel with Jews instead of having conversations about circumcision. Yeah. Yes. So let's even backtrack. You, you covered it, but let's backtrack. Is circumcision a sign? Yes or no? Yes. And what is a sign of? What does it point to? Covenant. covenant. You're a covenant child. It's an outward symbol and expression of being a covenant member, a child of the covenant. But even in the Old Testament, we find that that's not the ultimate sign. There, there's, it's, it's a temporary sign to something that's ultimately going to happen internally. Deuteronomy talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. That there's coming a circumcision of the what? the heart, which Zach just talked about, it's, it's regeneration. All of us have hearts of stone. Our, in our sin, we're hardened to God. We're, we're God-hating. We're rebellious by nature. And there's this promise that circumcision is pointing to, that there's coming a day where God will, will remove the hardness of the heart. He'll give us a new, soft heart. And there'll be a new sign that accompanies that. This internal reality will be accompanied by another external sign, but it won't be circumcision. It will be what? It's in the name of our church. Baptism, Baptism right? So, so we have circumcision as a temporary sign that points to regeneration, right? So Paul, coming along, he knows that the law is commanding circumcision to happen, but the fulfillment of what that points to has already come in Jesus. The Spirit's come. The Spirit is regenerating hearts. And now baptism is the external sign. Circumcision is useless at this point in some sense. And it's useful in some sense. And I think that's why we see a difference. So Paul, knowing that Titus is coming from a Gentile background, digs his heels in and says, no, he doesn't have to be circumcised. Because if he says he has to be circumcised, what are the people, the Christians in Jerusalem going to think? You need to do this to be what? Saved. Saved. If you want to be a Christian and part of the covenant community from a Gentile background, if I make somebody that's not of a mixed religious background become circumcised, it's going to set a standard that that's what you need to be, that's what needs to happen for you to be a Christian. How would that attack the gospel? That's, that's what he's defending in the book of Galatians. How would circumcision attack the gospel? Because it would be faith in Christ plus something. Circumcision, law-keeping. So to protect the gospel, to protect the purity of the truth of the gospel, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul says, no, no, no. Like, he's not going to be circumcised. But then he has another man, Timothy, who is from a Jewish background, and he has him circumcised. Is it because Paul's theology develops over time, and he, he had Timothy circumcised because at one point he thought, yeah, we should do that to become Christians, and then he changes his time, over time? Is that what happens? No. Even though he doesn't have to be circumcised, there is a usefulness here for him being circumcised. And you hit on that. What, can you kind of develop that? How would that be useful? You said it, and it was great. Because if Timothy and Paul walk into a synagogue in some foreign city to try to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, yeah. and they stop him at the door and ask, oh, this guy, half Jew, half Greek, is he circumcised? Yeah. Then 
they're going to have to have a really long conversation about why circumcision is not necessary before they even get to talk about the Lord Jesus. Right. Yeah. In Acts 16, verse 3, he says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. So Lystra and Derby, which is where Timothy's from, what do the Jews there know about him? This guy's got Greek background and he's not what? Circumcised. So in order specifically even for that area to avoid, well, why is he coming into the synagogue? He's not circumcised. Paul, knowing that this is going to be a barrier, that he has the freedom to be circumcised, but he doesn't have to become a Christian, he says this will be better for the gospel advancement. So what we have is kind of two enemies that he's fighting. Titus, he's fighting this legalistic Judaism of faith in Christ plus law. That's bad. So we won't have Titus circumcised. Here he's saying... We don't want the gospel to be hindered. We want the gospel to be freely preached without any cultural background, uh, barriers. So be circumcised. So we see here the law is useful. It's not bad, but it's not needed to be kept to be a Christian. It's not faith plus anything. It's faith in Christ alone. Questions or comments on that? Any questions on that? None. Great. All right. So let's, second thing we want to look at, and this is where I want to kind of hone in on Paul's letter to Timothy and Titus, is that we need sound doctrine. Like sound doctrine is essential for the health of a church. It's essential for the health of a Christian. Sound doctrine is not something that is dispensable. And I see this run throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But before we look at them, why do you think sound doctrine might be important to the Christian life? To the life of the local church? Someone other than Zach, too. Sound doctrine is important. Why? It points us to God. How can you know God apart from teaching about him? Okay? That's important. You can't love and worship a God you don't know. What else? Yeah, but that sounds really bigoted. You just said false teaching. So you saying that something saying something's wrong sounds really narrow. Why would we why would we try to have boundaries on our theology? Wouldn't that turn people away? I mean, when I if if I'm going to start a church and I want a lot of people to come, I don't want it to have restrictions on what we believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Sound doctrine will lead to what? Life. Life. Flourishing. Flourishing. Eternal life, right? Right living. What we believe dictates what we do. So therefore, flip that around. False teaching leads to what? Wrong living. Wrong living. Yeah. Like, when you read these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, there's this connection between false teaching and morality. Right? So let's just look at a couple of them. We're not going to look at all of them. I'll just kind of run through quickly, and we're not going to hit everything. So if you're like, wait, there's a, there's a patch that talks about this. I know. We're just trying to hit the highlights. So starting in 1 Timothy 1, look at the connection between what accords with sound doctrine and what doesn't accord with sound doctrine. Starting in verse 8. For we know that the law is good. It's good. If one uses it, what? Lawfully. It's kind of like a knife. If you know how to use it as a surgeon, it's a good thing. If someone's not trained, it becomes a bad thing. You can use it poorly and it becomes damaging. The law is like that. It's, it's wonderful if you know how to use it. And if you don't, you can really make a mess of things. So, verse 8, it's good for those who use it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. Notice what he links together. What someone believes and what someone does. So he doesn't just say, all these things that are sinful and say whatever doesn't accord with sound living. He says things that don't accord with sound doctrine. What you believe about God, what you believe about Christ, what you believe about humanity dictates what you do. So sound doctrine is essential. It connects with Christian living. We'll find another reason sound doctrine is important in chapter 4, verse 1. Jim, you want to take chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 5. 1 Timothy still, right? Yep. Now the Spirit expressly, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So there's coming a day where people will what? We need sound doctrine because there's coming a day when what's going to happen here? There's going to be teachings that come from where? Demons. That doesn't sound good, right? Like, those aren't things you want to believe. Those aren't things you want to follow. We need sound doctrine because the scriptures explicitly tell us there's coming false teaching. And what's the best antidote to false teaching? It's truth. Truth is essential because there are a myriad of lies. 
There are a myriad of people who stand up every Sunday, open this book and say, thus says the Lord, that say nothing but demonic things. And we need truth to be able to discern that so that we don't wander. Chapter 6, verse 20. And then we'll flip over to 2 Timothy after that. I'll read this. 20 and 21. O Timothy, so he's speaking to a young pastor, guard the deposit entrusted to you. What's the deposit? What does he need to guard? Truth of the gospel, right? The things that are sound doctrine. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Sound doctrine is a safeguard to keep us in the faith. 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. We won't read the whole thing, but verses 1 through 9, again, warn us of a day where there are people who are coming who are lovers of self, lovers of pleasure. And they do all these things. They're always seeking knowledge, but they never arrive at the knowledge of the truth. There is coming a day, Paul says to Timothy, and it happens in Timothy's day, and it still happens today, where people are, are looking for all these things, and they're never able to arrive at truth. The, 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 the kind of mantra of the age is selfism. Even back then, love yourself. Do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. And what's the safeguard against that? Hey, sound doctrine, right? Chapter 4. And then we'll look at a couple of verses in Titus, and then we'll, we'll kind of talk about applying that. Chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the, <clears throat> the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And here's the reason why. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why do we need sound doctrine? Because there are people out there who will stand in pulpits and will tell people what they want to hear. So I have this dog, big dog, and the dog loves if you just scratch behind its ear, like starts kicking his leg and like he just will not leave you alone. He wants his ears tickled. There's people like that. They want to hear things that sound good and feel good. And the antidote to that is to preach the word, to preach truth, to preach sound doctrine. To have men who stand in the pulpit who don't care about what you want and don't want. They care more about what's good for you and give you truth, whether it feels good or doesn't feel good. People who will, who will stand up and actually say what God says. That's the antidote to the age, is truth. Titus, chapter 1, verse 9. Here we have qualifications of an elder. And the last thing he says about a qualification of an elder in verse 9 is he must hold what? Firm. He needs to have conviction. 
must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. And there's two reasons for that. So that he may be able to do what? Two things. Positive and one negative. Teach what? What accords with giving, give instruction in what? Sound doctrine and what else? Rebuke those who what? Yeah, so Spurgeon had the best analogy I can think of. He, he talked about in Nehemiah uh, the, the trowel and the sword. They're, in one hand, they have a sword defending against the enemies of God. In the other hand, they have a trowel and they're building up the walls. And here we have, you need to be able to defend against the enemies of the truth, but also build up in truth. Sound doctrine. It's vital. And do you know what comes next? The reason why they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and, and refute those who contradict it, starting in verse 10. For there are many who are what? Insubordinate, empty talkers, and what? Deceivers. You see the theme that's running throughout these letters to young pastors? Teach the truth, teach the truth, teach the truth. Because it will help the people live rightly and it will protect them against from all the people who tell them a bunch of lies. Teach the truth. Teach the truth. Now, lest you be tempted to think, yeah, if I'm not in this room an elder, none of this has to do with me because they're the ones who are supposed to teach the sound doctrine, so what does this matter? These are young pastors, so what do I care? I'm just a, I'm just a church member. What do you say to that? Does this apply to someone other than a young pastor? You're saying yes. How might it apply to people who aren't young pastors? How might it apply to teenagers? How might it apply to, to older saints in the Lord, younger saints, single saints, married saints? Why do we need sound doctrine? Mark. Because we're all, we're all commanded to make disciples. Yeah. Yeah, what are the elders supposed to do in Ephesians 4? God's gifted the church, some teachers, some elders, some teachers, why? To equip the saints. So when we teach in Sunday mornings, when we teach Sunday nights, when we teach throughout the week, it's to equip so that all of the saints here know the word and can discern truth from error. Why else? You said, because we're supposed to do what? It started with a D. Well, all of us, right? Like Christians, members of the church are supposed to make disciples. And how are you going to make disciples if you don't know what's true? Because part of making disciples in Matthew 28 is what? Teaching them to what? All of us are supposed to do that. So we all need to know what's true. We all need to know what God requires of us in his word. So we need truth. Truth is vital to the life of the church. There's also another thing that runs through this that we've said over and over. Sound doctrine leads to right living. We all want to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, right? So what do we need to start with? Knowing Him rightly. Knowing what He says and doesn't say. So if you have a God in your mind who doesn't care what you do, think, or say, 
It's going to dictate how you live. If you have a God who's holy and just and hates sin, but loves sinners deeply, you have a God who's like, I, I fear him, but I, I can also confidently run to him. That's going to affect how you live. We need sound doctrine. Questions on that, comments on that, observations on that. How do you think we grow in this? Kevin. Yeah. Um, if you see someone that's not abiding sound doctrine or slipping or starting to be deceived by false teaching, to catch that and to bring that up and not to be not have fear of man. Yeah. So I think Absolutely. And there's another side of the see, say, see something, say something, because when we see people who are striving in the Lord, we should also say something. So there's both, right? We want to encourage. I see you studying the Word, and I see how you're growing. Keep going, keep going, sister. Keep going, brother. We see the other thing. I, I love you, and I'm seeing this, so come back, come back. Absolutely, yeah. So we, we should be striving here to have relationships throughout the week where we're actually meeting together and reading good Christian books, reading the scriptures, encouraging each other, asking each other hard questions, right? So that we can help disciple one another in sound doctrine, in right living. Anything else on that? All right, so let's now apply. We've already started digging into it, but Timothy and Titus, to me, jump out. The first thing that comes to mind is discipleship. Discipleship. How were they discipled? So they got saved, and Paul said, you know, first thing we need to do is we're going to sit down in a class, and I'm just going to diagram what these words mean and have you read some books before we do anything, right? Is that what he did? Is that a bad thing? No. But what does he do? What does he do with Timothy? In Acts 16, he wants him to what? Starts with an A. Accompany him. What does Timothy do with Paul? Follows him. What did the disciples do with Jesus? They followed him. They spent time with him. They watched him. So when Paul gets up to preach in the synagogues, who's with him all the time? Timothy. And what is he doing? Not only is he like learning truth himself, he's what? He's seeing it modeled. And then when they leave and, and they're walking along the way, what do you think they might be talking about? I, I don't have chapter and verse for this, but just based on the, the way the scriptures read, what do you think they might be doing? Timothy might be saying, hey, why'd you say this? Like, when you opened Isaiah, why did you go to Jesus from there? And what might Paul say? Well, let's talk about that. Or when, when Timothy's with Paul and Paul's getting persecuted and Paul just gets right back up and keeps going, what might Timothy say? What, what's, what's motivating you? Why are you doing this? All the while, what is that? That's discipleship. He's modeling to him truth. He's teaching him along the way. And what happens eventually? 
What does Paul eventually do with Timothy? He sends him off. He, come on, it's time for you to get out there. And he's, okay, now I'm going to send you to Ephesus. I'm going to send you to Corinth. So this man has been with Paul, observing Paul. Paul's been teaching him, both just instructing him, but also modeling for him. And eventually Paul says, you need to go out on your own. You need to go do it. You need to go teach. You need to go, well, let's look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Again, I know this is Paul writing to a pastor who's giving instructions about what he should do with other pastors, but I think it's applicable for the Christian life, for all Christians. It's a model for all Christians. Josh, do you mind taking 2 Timothy 2, verse 2? 2 Timothy 2:2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust in faithfulness, who will be able to teach others also. What's the model? I've instructed you, you consume it and just keep it to yourself, right? The consumer model of Christianity. Get more truth, get more truth, get more truth, and keep it to yourself, right? What does he say? So you've heard from me, that's step one, right? We need to be discipled, we need to be taught, we need to be growing in relationships with people who are more mature than us, that are instructing us. And then Paul says, do what with it? Teach others. others. So what's the model here? You are a disciple who what? Disciples. You are taught so that you can teach. I think that's the model of the Christian life. Is as we're instructed, we then instruct others. As we're learning, we help others learn. As God is sanctifying us, we come along one, one another and say, these are strategies that have helped me grow. We see Paul saying, I've taught you. I've entrusted you with the gospel. I've given you sound doctrine. Not so that you can sit on it. Not so that you can collect a whole bunch of theological knowledge that you can, you can win all the trivia and win debates. I've given it to you so you can pass it along to others. So as we think about us today, this is not just pastor to pastor. This is Christian to Christian. So I ask this question, and this is a rhetorical question, but who are you passing along what you're learning to? Or are you just consuming? There's a lot to be consumed at Delray. You can come and get really, really theologically fat here. Like you can learn a lot of doctrine. But the goal is not that you just walk around theologically fat. The goal is that as you learn, you pass. You have people that you have covenanted with that you can come and meet with throughout the week and help them grow. You can help them. You can, as you're reading books, you can read with someone else. As you're reading the Bible, you can read together. As you're learning, you can help others learn. So who are you discipling. Just a side note, discipling doesn't mean this is a one-way street where like I'm the smart one in the relationship and I'm teaching you. It's a relationship. Let's read together. What are you seeing? What am I seeing? It's a back and forth. It's a mutual growth. Discipleship. We need modeling. We need teaching. We need reproducing. I think that's what we see with Timothy and Titus. 
Paul taking young men under his wing so that they can go out and teach other people. So we see. The Christian life and, and the way the church grows does not need an extensive business model. We don't need a marketing strategy. Like, it's very simple. You learn and you help others learn. You're taught and then you reproduce. That's how the gospel grows. It grows slowly that way, but it grows. I mean, Paul disciples many other people in Scripture, but let's say he disciples Timothy and Titus, who then take three other guys and disciple them. You got six. And those guys take, eventually, that, that's rapidly reproducing. And that's how the church grows. That's how we grow. Questions about discipleship? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, scriptures are very clear, Old and New Testament, that if you are Christians, the primary people you disciple are your children. The primary means of them learning the scriptures in the home. And the church can be a supplement to that, right? So we have children's stuff here. Those aren't the primary means for us to disciple them. That's in the home. And the church comes along as a supplement. At the same time, as adult Christians, we also have primary responsibility home, but we also have responsibility as members one to another to help each other grow in the Lord. So, excellent comment. Yeah. Josh? I was just going to say, um, often when we have this conversation with discipleship and discipleship relationships, I know a lot of people get in their mind, it's like this really formal thing where yeah. you Yeah. Like, you may think, I don't have time in my day to carve out to meet with somebody. But, like, we all have, we all eat. So, <laughs> invite somebody over. Like, I'm going to eat at this time. Yeah. I can set another plate. And then while somebody's at your house, just talk about what's going on in life and allow the Lord to use what He has brought into your life and their life to create opportunities to bring the Word to bear on that. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's two things I would say in that. Number one, if you're sitting here and thinking, like I did as a young Christian, that's super overwhelming. I can't disciple people. Like, what do I have to go read? Like 80 books and get really smart before I can start helping people follow Jesus. Uh, You can help people follow Jesus where you're at. And you'll find that in those relationships, they actually help you follow Jesus. So, yeah, you don't need to, like, go study 80 hours before you can talk to other Christians about what you're learning. There is also a place for that if you, you know, studying is good and knowing what you're talking about is good. Uh, the other thing is, I think there does need to be an intentionality. So, like, when you have people in your home or when you have lunch with people, we should make sure that it's not like a rigid thing, but also a, an intentionality, like, how are you doing in the Lord? What can I be, be praying for? Are there sins you're struggling that we can help each other with? So we want natural but also intentional and that does for me when I meet with people I don't lead with those things like first time someone comes to my house I'm not like so what are you struggling with like we want to be normal and get to know people but we want those relationships to become intentional where hey what are you reading the scriptures if you're not like how can we help you read the scriptures so 
Yeah, we want normal people. Like you're not, we don't want you to just jump on people day one, but we do want intentionality. Good, good comments. All right, so let's move on to the next thing. Secondly, God saves and uses anyone. Notice the different kind of people the Lord saves here. He saves someone who was taught the scriptures and someone who came from a Gentile background who probably did not get taught the scriptures. God saved someone who came from a home where dad wasn't teaching the scriptures, and he came for, saved someone who mom and dad weren't teaching the scriptures. Jew and Gentile. The Lord can save anyone. What we find here, though, is that these two men go all over the place serving. Does that mean that if you become a Christian, or if you are a Christian in this room, that you need to just go all over the place randomly like these people know? But what do they do? We see people here who are saved and they're doing what? Serving. They're, Paul's like, hey, I have need of you in Ephesus. And what do they say? Going. I have need of you over here in Corinth. What do they do? Going. Is that our heart? Like, hey, I'm a Christian. I've been saved. And now I want the Lord to use me. How can I be used? Where, where can I be of use? Might there be things here at Delray Baptist Church, if you're a member, where you could be useful? I think there are. You can meet with people. You can open your home. You can help us get the emails coming out every week to stop by serving in children's ministry. We won't need to read those emails if people will say, I want to serve. If there's a need here, help me serve. So we see Christians who are saved and serving. Christians from all different kinds of backgrounds who are just saying, the Lord has saved me, the Lord has forgiven me, and now my life is given to him however he wants to use me. I mean, they're also serving in ways that they may not have wanted to. Like, I don't think knowing the mess that Corinth was that Timothy and Titus are like, when Paul's like, where you guys want to go? You got, you know, you got your choices. They're like, put Corinth at the top of the list. Like, just really want to go there. Like, everything that we've seen from Corinth and we hear about Corinth, like, destination, destination station Corinth. There's a need there. Like, that's where the need is, so that's where they go. All right, for sake of time, last thing. We can't do Christianity alone. Think about this. Think about how Paul talks about Timothy and Titus. He longs to see them. When he's in prison, he wants them to come. When, when he has a need in multiple cities, he's not omniscient. He can't go everywhere. So what does he He has need of other people. He needs encouragement, but he also, he's got, he's got fires going on in multiple cities. He needs other brothers he can rely on. You can't do Christianity alone. Delray Baptist can't exist with one person doing everything. You can't grow just by yourself. And other people can't grow by themselves. They need you, and you need them. We need each other. I think Timothy and Titus, in their relationship to Paul, just magnify that. They, they just shout, like, Christianity is meant to be lived in community. The church grows. The gospel spreads when we do stuff together, when we rely on each other. I mean, when you read 1 Timothy, Timothy is 
a timid guy. Paul has to command him. In, in the Greek, it's not, you know, uh, don't be timid. It's stop being timid. It's, a, it's an action that's already happening. He's telling him, stop. Do not fear. He's a timid man who needs another Christian to encourage him. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. We have people who are gifted in certain ways that can come alongside of us when, when we're struggling in certain ways and say, move forward, brother. Move forward, sister. Speak, brother. Speak, sister. We need each other. That encouragement, that rebuke at times, the reminders, don't forget Christ. Right? It's one of the commands that Paul gives Timothy. Remember Christ Jesus. He can't be encouraged or reminded by himself. He needs others. And so do you. And so do I. We need each other. Right? We need the church. Comments on that? Any thoughts on that? I know we're kind of moving quick at the end, but any comments or questions on either God saving and using anyone and them serving, and secondly, anything on not doing Christianity alone? All right, I'm going to read one passage, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. <clears throat> this is how Paul talks about, I think it's Titus here. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Right? So we have these Corinthians and Paul who are downcast, and how did God comfort them? He gave them a direct word of prophecy so that they didn't need to hear from anybody else. Right? They don't need you and you don't need me because the Lord will just audibly speak to me and give me comfort. Can he do that? Sure. How does he comfort his people here? Through the coming of who? Titus. How might he comfort brothers and sisters in this church? You're looking at them. We need each other. How might God comfort you? You're looking at them. Right? We need each other. The church needs one another. You cannot one another yourself. Right? All these one another commands that we spent the summer going through or the, the year going through last year, you, you cannot one another yourself. You need each other. I need you. So, as we close, we see Timothy and Titus I'm just super encouraged by these men and how the Lord used them. So if you have questions, comments, anything, feel free to stay after. I'm going to close this in prayer, though. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and confess our need for you and our thankfulness that you have given us the body. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to disciple one another, encourage one another when necessary, rebuke one another. We pray, Lord, that that we would be a church that faithfully disciples, faithfully serves, and faithfully sees that we actually need each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.